The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Remarkable. How old is this? About 600 years. My grandfather gave it to me when I was a child. It seems you have a long-standing obsession with exploration, Captain. I, on the other hand, have much more in common with this ancient soldier. He's from Earth's classical period. It produced some of our greatest artists as well. Your culture has many contradictions. Violence and beauty, science and faith, all somehow mingled harmoniously. Like the counterpoint of this music. Mahler, Symphony Number no. 1, am I correct? You're getting to know my musical database better than I do. I've had time to review it since our last encounter. Tell me, are all of your inspections this personal? I'm just trying to get to know you, Captain. Good morning, London. It is Thursday, July 15, 2010. I'm Bob Metz. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we will be with you from now until noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the clothes, everything will be Welcome to the show once again today where 519-661-3600 is a number you can always call if you want to join in on the conversation and today's theme is a single theme from front to end and that is the theme of music. What do you think of that, Robert? I think it's an interesting theme, Bob. We've never touched on this before. Not really. And what we want to do today is a counterpoint. (laughs) The philosophical, political, and social impact and implications of music. I'll be your counterpoint. Sure. And we want to talk about the history of music, the epistemology and science of music, the allure and the dangers of music, and music as a tool for social change. You think we can squeeze that all into the hour? Just. Just. <laughs> well, we're not going to be, um, you know, we're not going to be sitting around reminiscing about our favorite or our most hated tunes. You won't be doing any of that today. No, you won't be. I mean, I might. Well, you might a bit, but in terms of, uh, in a different context. And, uh, but basically, uh, you know, the opening clip there, I don't know if you, that was from an episode of Voyager. And I, you know, my respect for the writers of Star Trek, the whole franchise keeps going up each time I discover the depth to which many of their themes really go and uh, so cleverly interlaid with their stories and plot characterizations. And this is particularly true of the Voyager episode entitled Counterpoint, whose very title is one of the musical concepts we're going to be exploring today. And once I discovered what that concept meant, that episode of Voyager took on a completely different meaning to me. And and the depth of what was going on in that episode was, uh, you know, just a different shade to it. You know what I mean? But... um, so we're going to be taking a look at music, and I thought the place to start, the first half of the show, I want to make clear that when we talk about music in the first half, for my part, Robert, you're going to be sort of doing the second half, I'm talking about music without lyrics, just notes, like music itself, its history, its origin, and then the second half would get more into when lyrics 
come into music. And I looked up um, just to see what the background of music was, and as soon as I did that, I realized we'd opened a can of worms, and this isn't going to be the only show we'll probably be doing on this subject. It's funny, Bob, when I sort of broached the topic to you, you go, well, what can we say about music? And then after we both started getting into it, my God, one show is not enough. Yeah, I was going to do a whole (laughs) thing on uh, things I liked about Bob Marley, for example. I don't even think I'm going to bring him up today, except I just did. But other than that, uh, I I looked up the definition. I always like to start with definitions because, boy, do they tell you something. Uh, And music is from the Latin musica, from the Greek musique, derived from the term applied to the nine goddesses presiding over the arts and sciences. That's the course I took in high school, five-year arts and sciences. Is Is that derived from the muses? Is that what they mean? Um, I imagine that has a link. Hmm. It describes music as the art of combining tones and rhythms with a definite form and meaning in a manner pleasing to the ear. Uh, By the way, I'm getting all this out of my Universal World Reference Encyclopedia. But already I'm starting to think, if it doesn't have definite form, it's not music. And, you know, what form is necessary? Meaning to whom? Pleasing to whose ear? Who and how does anyone decide these things, you know? These are the first questions I'm already thinking when I just read that definition. And then I see other definitions. Rhythm is the regular recurrence of beats and accents. A tone is a sound with a fixed, regular rate of vibration, which causes it to have a definite pitch. Tones following one another in a simple, clear, rhythmic manner form what we call melody. Melody is based on a scale which is a direct progression of tones up or down from one tone to its octave. And the octave of a tone is another tone above or below with twice or half as many vibrations. So if you wonder why low C and high C sound the same, they're literally 100% more or less vibrations than the other. You're second. starting to talk about the mathematics of yes. music, which is a fascinating topic in and of itself. Maybe we should get Christopher Essex back here. Yes. <laughs> um, now, that's about, I don't want to go into too much detail. I'm just going to give a sketch here. Now, I went into the origins of music, and it says there's many theories concerning the origins of music. And I'm glad they said that because I scratched my head about a few of these, but it might be the best guess they have. One is that it started as mere rhythm to give the beat for dancing in religious ceremonies, and that it was not long until rhythmic wailing or praying was added and developed into song. Another, interesting, maybe they define song as different from music. Mm, I wonder with rap music, have we come full circle? (laughs) (laughs) Or you're just going around and around. Another theory is that music originated in cries expressing various emotions, and that these were standardized in two forms, one being speech, one being song. Little is known, however, about music before the Greeks, and that actually, quite frankly, surprised me. There are pictures of Egyptian tombs, Assyrian walls, and other ancient works which indicate that a wide assortment of instruments were used for religious purposes, but nothing is known about the nature of the music produced. Very little Greek music has come down to us, but we know much more about it from the writings of the philosophers, Pythagoras and Aristonixus, or or, or, or Aristoxenus, I guess we would pronounce that with an X in it. I don't know, pronounced as a... How would you pronounce an X? I As a wouldn't Z, even almost. begin to venture a yeah. try. <laughs> <laughs> it was based on a series of scales called modes, of which our modern C major scale is one. So I didn't even know that, that the C major scale was actually had to be invented and was discovered back with the Greeks. Uh, made me think, though, Robert, you know, we live in an age of electronics and, and everybody can listen to their own music and hear what it sounds like. But if we go back into history, it's it becomes a little understandable why we don't know much about the music before certain eras, because 
how were they to record it for us? And it wasn't until print came along, amazingly, and a code for encoding music that we could actually um, archive music without a- having heard it because of the lack of recording right. technology. And so, uh, you know, if you went back into the late 1800s or any time in 1800s, 1900s, you see sheet music was very popular. That was the way music was, quote-unquote, recorded. And, and people, communicated. And communicated. And, uh, but my, my references go on and continue to say um, Greek melody was not harmonized. And um, it made me think, so they must have had to sing provincial and fed- federal praises in separate <laughs> modes. <laughs> But um, Pope Gregory the Great, 540 to 604 AD, is generally associated with the medieval church music, or plain song, which has continued to be the only authorized music of the Roman Catholic Church. Got another story about this later on in the second half of the show, which I think you'll find a little funny. Um, The Gregorian chant is a single melody sung in unison with only that rhythm which is supplied by the words as they are spoken. Now we move to the Middle Ages, and folk songs developed among the common people. These were strongly regional in character and expressed everyday experiences, religious or patriotic sentiments of the people. The emotional tone of a nation's populace, this is interesting, can be found by a study of their songs. And it notes that English folk songs are usually love songs or vigorous outdoor tunes. Scottish folk songs are patriotic, historical, or melancholy love songs. Irish folk songs are fast, sprightly dances, or very beautiful slow melodies. Russian and other Slavic folk songs are very heavy and emotional. The French are simple and childlike. Hmm, don't know what that means. <laughs> Frere Jacques, is that yeah. what you're talking about? The German are masculine, patriotic, or sentimental, and the Italian are happy and sentimental. So that's the way they described the music of various countries in this encyclopedia, which was written in the 50s. I hadn't heard about the Beatles or anything like that yet. And then I ran into this wonderful word, counterpoint, which of course is our theme and was the name of the opening clip. And it writes, it reads, at the end of the Middle Ages saw the development of counterpoint, which is two or more melodies sung or played at the same time, independent of each other, yet sounding well together. The distinction between counterpoint and harmony is subtle. Harmony is a single melody accompanied by chords underneath or above, rather than by other melodies. The first crude efforts in counterpoint were made in the 15th century by such men as, men as Dufay and Bichois of the Netherlands and Dunstable of England. The form reached its height in the 16th century. Palestrina, 1526 to 1604, succeeded in overcoming the restriction placed upon church music by the Pope and became the greatest uh, contrapuntal composer in musical history. I'm not even sure what that means. But what I found interesting to note about the period, approximately from the mid-1600s and prior, was that almost all the music was written for voice, and that's what I kept seeing, without instrumental accompaniment. In the medieval world, music sat beside metaphysics, architecture and painting, and mainly as adjuncts to religion. That's what, that was its main public function. So lesson learned, music and religion share a common denominator in their history and origins. At least in the Western culture. Um, uh, certainly, I don't know if you can say that about the Eastern. I have something to say about that too. But now we move ahead, trying to get this history all in as quickly as we can. Then we come to Johann Sebastian Bach, 1685 to 1750, who apparently was the first great instrumental composer. That was his great distinction. 
that he wrote for instruments, not for voices. And his compositions were for the organ, various small orchestras, and for choirs. He wrote numerous fresh and beautiful chorales for use in Lutheran congregations, again, mm -hmm. a religious connection. Bach's famous contemporary Handel, 1685 to 1759, wrote his music with, quote, a higher delineation and feeling, with its more powerful and moving assertion in music. And it was accompanied by the similar aspects in thought, which characterized the Reformation. And I start seeing, okay, well, music is very influenced by the politics and thinking of the time in which it's written. And then comes a more classical or more familiar classical period, Mozart, Hayden, which, by the way, uh, Captain Janeway mentions in the opening clip when they're discussing the music. Mm -hmm. um, followed by the Romantic period, which began early in the 19th century. Classicism had been a philosophy of causes, but values became the chief concern. Music became more strongly emotional, more subjective, and filled with philosophical implications. Beethoven, 1770 18, to 1827, started as a classical composer, but became increasingly romantic. His great fifth symphony, symphony, full of minute shades of emotion and meaning, is generally considered one of the greatest pieces of music ever written. In the, in the works of Wagner, Brahms, and Tchaikovsky, expressions of dramatic ideas and intensification of emotion reached an unparalleled height. Now, at this point, you know, I have to just say that I'm purposely skipping the more recent developments of North American music, because we'll be talking about that a little later in the show. But here's one last item about the development of early music that really caught my eye. And that was what you were just saying about uh, music in the, in the East, perhaps. And it says here, music in the Orient has had a development almost completely separate from Western music. From a technical standpoint, it is not so highly, highly developed because of an almost complete lack of harmony. But in other respects, it is highly complex. Chinese music originated about 3000 BC. The Chinese have always been a peaceful and orthodox people, whereas Western races have been active and progressive. Their ideals have always been tempered by a pessimistic, mystical attitude. Hence, their music has been filled with the subtlety that comes from long hours of contemplation. Kind of sounds like that kind of music when you hear a lot of uh, music from the Orient, doesn't it? Very contemplative. Yes, yeah, very almost like a background music more, I think. In a sense, so yeah. that is that you're you're not necessarily thinking about the music, but thinking other thoughts while the music is, music is playing exactly. in the background. Exactly, and and it it concludes by saying the complete lack of tempo, purpose, and regular rhythm in their music makes it almost unintelligible to many Western ears. But their treatment of fleeting moods and the sweet, limpid quality of their melodies is beautiful to hear once the first difficulties of appreciation are overcome. The music of Japan was borrowed from China, but lacks the finer, more philosophic elements of its parent type, end quote. Interesting to, to, you know, writing about music isn't really the easiest thing in the world to do to try and explain something that is very so subjective, emotional. That's right. That makes it very subjective. Eh? And, and that's what we're going to get into next, right after the upcoming break because uh, we want to talk a little bit about uh, how, how, how do we hear music? How do we actually perceive it? What do we know about it? Why does it affect us the way it does? And how is it different from the other arts? Um, these questions were actually all uh, attempted to be answered by Ayn Rand, and we're going to deal with that after this coming break, and we will be back right after this. Well, I'm going to 
Beethoven's gone, but his music lives on, and Mozart don't go shopping no more. You'll never meet Liszt or Brahms again, and Elgar doesn't answer the door. Schubert and Chopin used to chuckle and laugh, whilst composing a long symphony. But 150 years later, there's very little of them left to see. They're decomposing composers, there's nothing much anyone can do. You can still hear Beethoven, but Beethoven cannot hear you. days of the 1960s, sort of uh, when everything was friendly and nice. Uh, and I had come to know Ayn Rand, and I was meeting with her evenings uh, every couple of weeks, and it was a marvelous experience, uh, but that's not the subject now. The thing is, I had met Barbara and Nathan, uh, both at the NBI meetings and at her at Ayn Rand's apartment. And so I had come to know them and like them very much. Uh, of course, we were all very deferential to Ayn Rand, and when she spoke, uh, people didn't say very much. I probably said more than I should have, but uh, we, we always took the consequences for that when that happened. At any rate, Barbara and I once took on Ayn Rand uh, because she didn't like the American writer Thomas Wolfe, whom Barbara and I both liked very much. I had read a little bit of Thomas Wolfe with one of his most imaginative paragraphs to Ayn. She was not impressed. She frowned. She didn't like it at all. And <clears throat> we couldn't convince her until Barbara herself said, but it's beautiful music. And Ayn Rand couldn't question that. And with that, the conversation dropped for the moment. It always came up again. And that was the voice of John Hospers in his introduction of Barbara Brandon here at the University of Western Ontario back in 2000 at the International Society for Individual Liberty. And um, we're going to be hearing from Barbara Brandon a little later in the show who makes a remarkable observation about art and music in general and its effects on not just culture and politics, but personal character. But first... Ayn Rand, you know, this debate that they were talking about, that they must have had arguments about music, I can just imagine how they went. And, um, it's probably because we've had them. <laughs> yeah, everybody probably has. It's like you want to get an argument going, get people talking about art, and what is art, and what isn't art, and what's good art, and what's bad art. And these are some of the questions that Ayn Rand has attempted to um, answer. And I say attempted because, as she says herself, she says she urges the reader to remember that whatever she says here is only a hypothesis. <laughs> okay? This isn't written in stone. And she says, from the standpoint of uh, psychoepistemology, she can only offer a hypothesis on the nature of man's response to music. And she notes that one may listen to noise for an hour, a day, or a year, and it just remains noise. But musical tones heard in a certain kind of succession produce a different result. 
The human ear and brain integrate them into a new cognitive experience, into what may be called an auditory entity, a melody. And that's how Ayn Rand describes the very thing I just got out of the encyclopedia earlier. They just gave a definition. A melody is a sequence of notes. But Rand always goes further. Why do you hear it as a sequence? What do you hear? What is it that your mind's doing? Your mind's organizing it in a certain way. And that's why some music seems weird to you and you can't relate because your brain hasn't differentiated what it needs to do to hear the music. And she, she notes that the integration is a physiological process. It is performed unconsciously and automatically. Man is aware of the process only by the means of its results. Helmholtz has demonstrated that the essence of music perception is mathematical. The consonance or dissonance of harmonies depends on the ratios of frequencies of their tones. Again, that's what we just talked about with, you know, being one scale right above, exactly half. The brain can integrate a ratio of one or two, for instance, but not of eight to nine. The psychoepistemological meaning of a given composition lies in the kind of work it demands of a listener's ear and brain. A composition may demand the act of alertness needed to resolve complex mathematical relationships, or it may deaden the brain by means of monotonous simplicity. And, you know, I have to say, sometimes I, I can take both. I don't mind. It's not like I think one's bad or one's not bad. That's I agree. Not, and that's not the issue. And, and Rand, Rand notes that later on, too. It may demand a process of building an integrated sum, or it may break up the process of integration into an arbitrary series of random bits, or it may obliterate the process by a jumble of sounds mathematically and physiologically impossible to integrate and thus turn back into noise. And isn't that how you react to something when you don't like it? Oh, that's noise. Turn it off. You yeah, know? Shut that bleeding racket off. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's just racket to you. Someone else is and they're just in ecstasy over the sound, right? Yeah. And you're going, oh my God, that's driving me nuts. It's right? the subjectivity again. Exactly. And uh, the listener becomes aware of this process in the form of a sense of efficacy or of strain or of boredom or of frustration. His reaction is determined by his psychoepistemological sense of life or by the level of cognit cognitive functioning on which he feels at home. Now, in terms of fundamental emotions, that is, the emotions produced by a person's metaphysical value judgment, uh, that man responds to music. It, it, it is in those terms, she says, that man responds to music. It's emotional. It's an emotional response. Music, and remember here we're talking about music without words, right? If we add words, those that's not really music in the strict sense. That's poetry or talking, it's right? It's a total other element. Right, although it's part experience. of a song. It yeah. can be part of a song. We're talking about just the notes, basically. Uh, music cannot tell a story. It cannot deal with concretes. It cannot convey a specific existential phenomenon such as a peaceful countryside or a stormy sea. The theme of a composition entitled, quote, Spring Song is not spring, but the emotions that spring evoked in the composer. Even concepts which intellectually belong to a complex level of, ab of abstraction, such as peace, revolution, and religion, are too specific, too concrete to be expressed in music. We'll see how this affects uh, John Lennon when we hear <laughs> a little bit from John Lennon later, later on with the whole peace and revolution issue. All that music can do with such themes is convey the emotions of serenity or defiance or exaltation. Music communicates emotions which one grasps but does not actually feel. Now, that's interesting. I always thought of feeling my emotions. But you know when you think about it, you don't feel them. Feeling is like You sensory. have them. You have them, that's right. And that's why two people can have different emotions about the same 
metaphysical reality. Because they have two different, two different concepts of self. Um, what did Rand say? Um, self-worth. Um, yes, and, and, and their appraisal of what yeah. they're looking at or what they hear. So you can have these different reactions, and, and the reaction is not felt, it is grasped. And I thought, I, now I understood why she was using that word all the time, grasping instead of feeling. Well, I never understood that before. What one feels is a suggestion, a kind of distant, disassociated, depersonalized emotion, until and unless it unites with one's own sense of life. Music, here, this is interesting too, music conveys the same categories of emotions to listeners who hold widely divergent views of life. As a rule, men agree on whether a given piece of music is happy or sad or violent or solemn. But even though in a generalized way they experience the same emotions in response to the same music, there are radical differences in how they appraise this experience. Yes, whether it's good or not. Yeah. Or how they feel about their feelings. That's what they're talking about. Mm -hmm. And then she says, this is the pattern, as she has, she's figured it out, the pattern... That we, how we respond to music. And she said, it seems to be as follows. First, you perceive the music. Then you grasp the suggestion of certain emotional state. And with one sense of life serving as the criterion, one appraises the state as enjoyable or painful, desirable or undesirable, significant or negligible, according to whether it corresponds or contradicts one's fundamental feeling about life. Now, I looked at that and I thought, I don't know if I would have said feeling about life. I would say feeling at the time of the perception because, you know, I might have a certain feeling about life and one day a piece of music I thoroughly love and I want to listen to. Yep. Uh, the next I'd day I cannot totally. stand listening to that piece. I want to listen to something with a different mood. Like who wants to hear Pachelbel's Canon every day? Yeah, <laughs> I, I, as, as good as it may be, you know, like watching the same TV show all the time, although yeah. who hasn't been guilty of that once in a while? It's because our moods fluctuate and we want music to accentuate... Sure or to bring us out of a mood, or to accentuate a mood. That's, that's, why, that's why music has to be different all the time. Exactly. For me, the same song I'll enjoy on Monday might drive me up a wall on Wednesday when I'm in a different emotional state, without my feelings about life in general having been changed or affected in any way. That's right. So I get the point, but it's an emotional thing. And um, After all, it was only a hypothesis, yeah. wasn't it? And here she says, the fundamental difference between music and the other arts lies in the fact that music is experienced as if reversed in man's normal epistemological process. The other arts create a physical object, an object perceived by the senses, be it a book or a painting. And the psycho-epistemological process goes from the perception of the object to the conceptual grasp of its meaning to an appraisal in terms of one's values to a consequent emotion. So the pattern is from perception to conception, an understanding, to appraisal, to emotion. But the pattern of process involved in music is from perception to emotion to appraisal to conceptual understanding. Man, or music is experienced as if it had the power to reach man's emotions directly without having to go through any of those processes. Music gives man's consciousness the same experience as the other arts, a concretization of his sense of life. But the abstraction being concretized is primarily epistemological rather than metaphysical. It is man's consciousness, his method of cognitive functioning, which he experiences in the concrete form of hearing a specific piece of music. If you accept or reject music, it depends on whether it calls upon or clashes with or confirms or contradicts that person's mind's way of working. The metaphysical aspect of the experience is the sense of a world in which he is able to grasp, to which his mind's working is appropriate. 
Music is the only phenomenon that permits an adult to experience the process of dealing with pure sense data. Single musical tones are not precepts, but pure sensations. They become precepts only when integrated. Sensations are man's first contact with reality. When integrated into precepts, they are the given, the self-evident, the not to be doubted. Music offers man the singular opportunity to reenact, on the adult level, the primary process of his method of cognition, the automatic integration of a sense data into an intelligible, meaningful entity. To a conceptual consciousness, it is a unique form of rest and reward. And then finally, she says the formulation, uh, here's where we get into, is it good music or bad music? You know, is, is there a right or wrong to the type of music? And she says, before we can answer that, we've got a lot of work to do. She says, a formulation of a common vocabulary of music would require a translation of the musical experience, the inner experience, into conceptual terms, an explanation of why certain sounds strike us a certain way, a definition of the axioms of musical perception from which the appropriate aesthetic principles can be derived which would serve as a base for the objective validation of aesthetic judgments. Don't know if that's ever going to be possible, Robert. But she does say, until a conceptual vocabulary is discovered, no objectively valid criterion of aesthetic judgment is possible in the field of music. So is she saying that music is in the air of the beholder? Uh, totally. No one, therefore, can claim an objective superiority of his choices over the choices of others. There goes a whole lifetime of, of claims and counterclaims. I know, I, I've tried. <laughs> <laughs> Where no objective proof is available, it's every man for himself and only for himself. And she says, the nature of musical perception has not been discovered because the key to the secret of music is physiological. It lies in the nature of the process by which man perceives sounds. The answer would require the joint effort of a psychologist, or, or sorry, a physiologist, a psychologist, and a philosopher. <laughs> so that's how she concludes on that. Got to take a break at the bottom of the hour now, and the next voice you are going to hear is that of Barbara Brandon, who of course knew Ayn Rand very intimately, wrote a book about her, The Passion of Ayn Rand and others, spoke here at the university in 2000, and she was talking about how Art creates character, not just uh, influences, you know, society. And I thought her, what she had to say in these next two minutes or so was uh, really quite something. And when we return on the other side, we enter the modern era as we hear from John Lennon and Robert. you got some interesting things to say about the dangers and, and uh, you know, the allure of music in just the modern day. Just some observations, day. sure. Yeah, sure. And we'll be back right after this. We have been brought up with the view, and it's pummeled at us today, that our early environments shape our future. They shape our thinking, they shape who we are, and so forth. I've always been convinced that something is left out of that equation that's very, very important, and I've never heard psychologists so much as mention it. Part of our environment, a crucial part of our environment growing up, is the books we read the music we hear, the paintings we look at. In my own case, in my own experience, the books I loved formed my, my character, my worldview, my concept of what life could be infinitely more than the narrower environment around me. My teachers certainly had very little to do with shaping who I am. The books I loved had a great deal to do with it. Uh, first and foremost, throughout history, it's art that has moved people to action. 
It's art that has inspired their passions, that has made them mount barricades and fight for noble causes and sometimes ignoble causes. But uh, Mises' theory that there's no, no ec economic calculation is possible under socialism is the work of a great, very great mind. But it isn't going to cause anyone to climb a barricade and fight for freedom, not by itself. It's art that does that in whatever form, music, writing, uh, uh, painting, sculpture. These are the things that capture human imagination and that inspire people. Think of Uncle Tom's Cabin, of uh, Chopin's Polonaise, <coughs> excuse me. Think of Atlas Shrugged. And this is not unusual at all. This has been so historically. And in fact, Ayn Rand often said that she would know she had won her battle when, when cartoons, comic strips, started carrying her message. Well, some of them are now carrying her message. The battle is not yet won. <laughs> but, but in order to reach a large public, philosophy must filter down from academia into the art, into the comic strips, into any form of public culture, then it moves people to action. John Lennon doesn't affront the Queen by sending his in, back his MBE. He doesn't make a hapeneth of difference to attitudes on Biafra and Vietnam or to the place of his drug-orientated record in the charts. He mm. makes an ass of himself. If I'm going to get on the front page, I might as well get on the front page with the word peace. But you've made yourself ridiculous. To some people, I don't care. If it, You're too good for if it what saves lives... You don't think you... Oh, my dear boy, you're living in the nether, nether. Well, uh, you talk to You the... don't think you saved a single life. What do you know about a protest movement anyway? I know a lot it's about it. It's a lot human. more than sending your chauffeur in your car back to Buckingham Palace. You're just a snob about it. The only way you're to make... You're a fake. Can't you give up something else that would mean a little bit? It was no sacrifice to get rid of the MBE because it was an embarrassment. Then what kind of a protest did you make? You I, said, I don't know much about an advertising Nigeria. campaign for peace. There Can you one. understand that? No, I can't. A very big advertising campaign for peace. And well, you think it's vulgar and self-aggrandizing. Are you advertising oh, John Lennon or Do you want nice middle-class gestures for peace Maybe. and intellectual manifestos America, written by a lot of half-witted <laughs> intellectuals and nobody reads them. Oh. That's the trouble with the peace movement. I'm someone who admired you very much. Well, I'm you sorry know. you liked the old mop tops, dear, and you thought it was, you know, it was very satirical and witty, the and you liked Hard Day's Night, love, but I've grown up, but you obviously haven't. Have you? Yes, folks. And welcome back to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. And you can call us at 519-661-3600 if you want to join in on conversation about music. And, of course, that was the voice of John Lennon. And he was having a bit of an argument, a very heated a argument. One, yeah. yeah, with a, a correspondent from the New York Times who criticized his return of his MBE as a political stunt. 
using his reputation as a beetle to further his political aims. And by the way, I think she was spot on. That's, that's exactly what he was doing. I don't, don't know about you, Bob, but if anybody sort of rewarded me or at least acknowledged and gave you an award, an award for your, your life's work and all that, you wouldn't just spit in their face by turning it back on them. I think that that was a rather crass thing for, for Lenin to do. Yes, and it, was, it had a lot to do with his tone, though, as well, which yeah. appealed to a lot of people. It did. It was that counterculture type mm-hmm. of thing, that uh, anti-establishment tone that he had, um, that not wasn't assured necessarily by the other Beatles, too, by the way. But at, this was after the fact that mm-hmm. the Beatles broke up, I think, that this happened, too. But, um, you know, we're going to talk in this last uh, half hour about more modern music, um, the lyrics, the, uh, the impression that music has made on people. But just before we get into that, there was something I wanted to sort of say about the, the first half hour where you're talking about the philosophy of music, and that is the fact that a lot of what you talked about with Ayn Rand and her understanding of music and art came out of um, her book, Romantic Manifesto. And out of all of the books that Rand has Which, written... Believe it or not, I haven't read yet entirely. Oh, I've only read parts of it. <laughs> out of all of the books she's written, uh, Fountainhead, uh, We the Living, uh, Atlas Shrugged, even her um, non-fiction like Capitalism, The Unknown Ideal, mm-hmm. The Romantic Manifesto is the book that I've gotten the most out of with Ayn Rand. Now, mind you, you can't really get out of it what you need to get out of it unless you understand a lot about objectivism and have read mm-hmm. the uh, other books. But because the Romantic Manifesto talks about that branch of philosophy, which is above all of the others, and that is aesthetics. And, and you can't really understand aesthetics in philosophy unless you have a, a fairly decent grasp of her metaphysics, epistemology, ethics, and politics. Mm-hmm. But I um, just wanted to mention that the Romantic Manifesto... You know, a lot of people think that Rand is pure, or was purely a political figure, which is totally oh. not true. That was just incidental yeah. to everything she did. She was by, by far, you know, first first and foremost an artist, an, a writer, yes, a screenplay uh, writer. She did many movies that people don't even know what she was doing back with Cecil B. DeMille and all that stuff. She was too. a screenwriter, yes. And that was uh, what led her to her politics, which was what, very late in life. She didn't really get too active till her late 50s and 60s. That's when the whole thing started. Her appreciation for music and uh, and what you just talked about there stayed with me for, for many years after I read that book, as well as her appreciation for, for example, like Victor Hugo versus a uh, and M- Mickey Spillane and, and and writers and how they write write uh, how they wrote and why it's a uh, not too sure we would have shared her taste in music though. Oh, from perhaps what, not. From what I've read, <laughs> <laughs> I think she she liked that uh, long way to Tipperary yeah, rinky dinky type of music. Uh, well, anyway. I see you just insulted a whole bunch of people. <laughs> but you know, it's all subjective, right? And yeah. My opinion is just as valid, well, at least when it comes to music, as apparently anybody else's. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't really think that's true. I think there are objective standards, but I think you have to set them in advance. And you have to and, define and your terms. You have and to why, define your Why term. do you like something? Why don't you like something? But just to get back to John Lennon here, because um, like this. We're going to talk about lyrics now for a moment and, and political posturing with music. It's yeah, I, I found that last clip interesting because the correspondent, you know, like the correspondent, I too loved the Beatles. I still do. And John Lennon's music, I still do. And the music of his contemporaries in the 60s and 70s, the area that I grew up in. I loved The, the Who, The Stones, The Moody Blues, The Doors, ELO, and many, many more. <laughs> as they always say on the albums. <laughs> and uh, like the New York Times correspondent, when I grew up, I could see how Lennon used his cachet as a beetle to give his philo- philosophy validity. And we still see it today with people like uh, Bono from U2, 
who takes it upon themselves uh, to criticize the uh, the West for not doing enough for the poor, or a Bob Geldof of the uh, Boomtown Rats. He used his uh, celebrity status to further his political activism to feed the world with the quickly assembled group called Band-Aid, um, which included singers like Phil Collins, George Michael, Sting, Boy George, David Bowie, and Paul McCartney, another Beatle. And, you know, actors are guilty of this as well, using their celebrity status to push a, a philosophy or a political agenda like uh, Ben well, Kingsley. Is it, really, is it really being guilty of anything? I think if, if, no. you, if you have that status, use it. Uh, that's true. However, just because you're a great musician doesn't mean that you're right when it comes to politics. Separate or, issue, separate issue, I think. I yeah. think uh, whatever, whatever you believe, you, I'm sure you would use your reputation to help promote it. Yeah, right however, or wrong. I mean, how, everybody thinks they're right. Let's put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> however, just like the New York Times correspondent, she's she's considering it um, uh, from the perspective of oh, just because you're a Beatle, you think you're right about returning your MBE, or you're right about um, getting out of Vietnam, or you're right about this, or you're right about that. No, sorry, you're a great musician. Like she said, I really liked you when you mm -hmm. were you know a Beatle, <laughs> but when it comes to this stuff, you're an amateur. What do you know about protests? Do you really think you saved a human life? What an effrontery, <laughs> you know. So. Well, yeah, she was asking for a little more reality. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You grow up, she yeah. was basically telling. Well, him. He what, said he did. Grow growing up. up is all about, isn't it? Yeah, and it's not just musicians who use their cachet as uh, celebrities. I mean, actors have done it for you know years. Look at Ben Kingsley. I mentioned him last month when he was trying to to push that uh, Robin Hood tax uh, and appearing in some of those videos. Uh, but these, these kinds of examples are quite obvious compared to something a little more subtle, and that's the, the hitchhiking ideas onto music through the lyrics. Remember George Harrison's My Sweet Lord? Fantastic little tune that apparently he stole. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, three, three, she's three so notes. Fine. Of, yeah, 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 she's so fine, yeah. Um, you know, I think it was much to his delight when he conned people at the beginning of the song into believing he was singing about Jesus, when in, he switches the refrain near the end from Hallelujah to Hare Krishna. In fact, I believe George Harrison's embracing of Hinduism and Eastern mysticism was responsible for many converts to Eastern mysticism in the 70s. The Hare Krishnas at the airports, remember that? Mm -hmm. He was not the only one from the West dabbling in it, but his music gave it more credibility because of his reputation as a Beatle and as a celebrity, just like John Lennon was doing. The Moody Blues were another... It certainly wasn't the words of what he sang that would sell it. It's the music itself, isn't it? There's something... I think when people yes. hear, hear the melody, they go, well, that's a pretty melody, and if the melody's pretty, whatever ideas are associated with it must also be pretty. You use the exact word, association. Yes. I love that tune... Now, what are they talking about? What is the lyrics about? So therefore, maybe the lyrics have, you know, they're associating the lyrics, what the ideas that they're trying to convey in the lyrics with the music and with an emotion. See, feel good with this emotion. Um, you know, uh, but, they, you know, just remember the Moody Blues. They mm -hmm. did it too. Um, they put a lot of Eastern mysticism into their music and into their lyrics. Um, tie these types of songs into the... Uh, expanding drug culture and the mysticism was a, a great attraction for many of the youth and many young minds. Is it any surprise then that authorities over the years have considered music almost on the same plane as drugs? 
you really think about it. Remember you know, they the were it's been burning controlled. records back yeah. then? Well, and banning Elvis Presley from dancing from the waist down <laughs> and yes. uh, all sorts of issues with music. And, it's, and even the officialdom of the church, what was what was permitted. They wanted to make sure it was the most dull type of music that, that, that you could possibly get. You know, yeah. like almost single note, don't, don't get too fancy. You know, just to give John credit, his, uh, John Lennon credit, and his Jew, and we're going to go to a clip in a second, which is going to explain something I want to get across here, and that is that he quite reasonably understood that sometimes when he's putting down the words to the music, they're just random words, and they sound good with the tune. So uh, we're going to take a little break now, and, and you're going to hear another clip from John Lennon where he's talking to uh, a vagrant who happened to be uh, camping on his uh, estate in in England. Well, somebody who took his music very seriously. Took it very (laughs) seriously, and John Lennon basically had to tell him, look, man, I'm just some guy, you know. Kind of a talking down. Yes. So we'll take this break and be right uh, right back after this. There was no sort of particular security, and one of our assistants told us that there was this strange guy that was just staying in our gardens almost every night. John always felt responsible for these people because they were the result of his songs. That's how he felt. Don't confuse the songs with your own life. I mean, they might have relevance to your own life, but a lot of things do. So we met, you know, I'm just a guy, man, who writes songs. Yeah, I I figured that we met. I'd know just by reading. But know what? It all fits. Anything fits, you know. If you're tripping off on some trip, anything fits, you know. Look at you, boy. You're gonna carry that weight for a long time. That was just. That's Paul saying that. But that belongs to all of us. He's thinking about all of us. Remember that one? um, You can radiate everything you are. You can penetrate anywhere you go. Yeah. I was just having fun with words. It was literally a nonsense song. I mean, Dylan does that. Anybody does it, you know. They just take words and you, have, you stick them together and, and see if they have any meaning. Some of them do, some of them don't. Say that last album of mine was me coming out of my dream. You can last your whole life on that dream, you know? And then it's all over. You weren't thinking of anyone in particular when you were singing all that. How could I be? How could I be thinking of you, man? Well, I don't know, maybe I don't care me, but it's all, it's all somebody. I'm know? thinking about me? Or at best, Yoko, if it's a love song. I'm saying, you know, I had a good today and uh, this is what I thought this morning and, uh, you know, and, or I love you, Yoko, whatever. I'm singing about me and my life, you know, and if it's relevant for other people's lives, that's all right. people starving in the world but then again they get on TV <laughs> right first of all those of you going ooh shut up it's a joke <laughs> and secondly I'm the victim of that joke for suggesting it's worth going through hell to be famous we're part of a karaoke generation everyone wants to be a star I met a guy in a bar the other day he said I'd love to be famous I went really what for and he went dunno isn't that a silly thing to want to be famous? And you might think you're a comedian. You must want to be famous. I don't. I want to be successful at what I do, and fame just happens to be a byproduct of that. If I have a big meal, it's not because I want to poo. 
That's a principle you can apply to a lot of things, isn't it, Robert? <laughs> I'm just writing that down. Here yeah. <laughs> and it's so true. You get a lot of people who are, who are ac- accused of just being wanting fame for fame's sake. One person who survived his fame was Ringo Starr, just turned yes. 70, yes. and is doing uh, is in the middle of a tour. And, and in the National Post, there was an interesting little interview with him. And they said, how are you feeling about the number 70? And he says, I just felt I've got to celebrate it. I'm on my feet and I'm doing what I love to do. And I'm in a profession as a musician where we can go on for as long as we can go on. I'm not hiding from it, you know. Sounds very much like the attitude just expressed in that clip. And, um, but of course, he's still talking about peace and love. That hasn't changed at all. Same nope. message. And this I found interesting. Remember I mentioned about the Vatican in the first half of the show. And they asked him, Uh, Here's a question. A few weeks ago, the Vatican finally gave its approval to the Beatles. How do you feel about that? And his answer was, it didn't affect me in any way, but I do believe that the Vatican have better things to deal with than forgiving the Beatles. I don't remember what it actually said. It had some weird piece in it, too. That they've forgiven us for being, what, satanic? Whoever wrote it was thinking about the stones. (laughs) (laughs) You still got a sense of humor, right? Satanic Majesty's request. And then he says, then he's asked, are you ever surprised by the unpredictable ways in which the Beatles continue to resonate in the popular culture? And he answers, what's more interesting to me is that our records are still coming out and they're still the same records and the new generation gets to hear them. As far as I'm concerned, that's the most important thing to me. And there you go, you know, an artist who appreciates his art. I've always liked Ringo Starr. Always. is a very, very mellow Beatle. (laughs) The oldest one, I think, too, wasn't he? I think so, yeah. Yeah. Um, John Lennon sang, All We're Saying Is Give Peace a Chance. I remember that. Great little tune, great little ditty. Does uh, does he ever say why? Why should we give peace a chance, other than to say peace is better than the war? No, in fact, peace is not always better than war. Europe could have had uh, peace in its time if it had allowed Hitler to just simply march over their territories. Peace unchecked. of Nazism. Yeah. yeah. At what price, peace? Give peace a chance is meaningless. It's John's own words quite often what he says are just random playing with words, man. Yeah. It depends on what you're tripping on. <laughs> sometimes they mean something and sometimes they don't. Right. And it's quite often they don't. And even it's, if they don't, the, the, the listener can often put his own meaning to them and create yeah. a religion. <laughs> <laughs> there simply isn't enough room in a song or even an entire album to convey a philosophy. So what you end up with are canned phrases like all you need is love without any substantial explanation as to why all you need is love. While love is certainly a nice thing to have, like the Ruttle said that there's something to be said for all you need is cash, too. <laughs> <laughs> would, the, would the music exist, though, Bob, if it wasn't for the lyrics, as, as vacuous as they may be? I don't think so, but I find it funny that we can enjoy the music just as much when the words are changed as they are in parody. I can enjoy Weird Al Yankovic's Amish Paradise as much, or even more so, than Coolio's Gangsta's Paradise. Same music different words. Can music bring about a change in people's lives, such as the religious beliefs? I remember going to church in the 60s, Catholic church, when they started to bring guitars and singing into the service. I, I don't know if they still do it since I haven't been to a Catholic service. I was going to say, it's probably the last time you went to church. <laughs> 1977 was the last time I went to church. Yeah. But I... Um, I'd remember that someone get up on the altar, up, up at, at the altar, and start singing Joy to the World or that old African spiritual Kumbaya. Mm-hmm. And even as a youngster, I saw this as a ruse. 
a deliberate attempt to use popular music to deliver a message or perhaps just to uh, alleviate the boredom of a 10-year-old forced to give up his Sunday morning to go to church. Uh, it goes back to what I was saying about people playing on our emotional responses to melodies to associate these emotions with their message. Advertisers are masters at it, using melody to imprint a brand. I bet anyone of my generation will know the lyrics and melody too. I'd like to buy the world a Coke. You know, Mm -hmm. there are hundreds of other jingles rattling around in our brains right now that if you heard just a couple of notes, you would immediately think of the brand associated with them and perhaps even rhyme off the, the jingle flawlessly. We've heard it so often. Music is a powerful communicator of ideas because it creates tremendously long memory connections in the brain. As an example, if I took a part of a sentence out of a popular novel, say Harry Potter, if you read the book, do you think you could finish the sentence? Probably not. But if I played just a couple of notes from a popular melody, or just a, co- just a couple of lyrics from a popular song. More often than not, you'd be easily complete the passage. Or you'd be walking around all day saying, I can't get that tune out of my get, mind. <laughs> driving me crazy. Whoever said, I can't get that sentence out yeah. of my mind. <laughs> or I can't get that artwork out of my mind. You know, That's a good point. It sort of d- does something. It mm-hmm. wor- worms its way through your brain. And I don't know. Beethoven's fifth. Da-da-da-dum. You can finish the next bar. Everybody can. They know it intimately. You may not have heard the, for example, you may not have heard the theme to Sesame Street in decades, but if I start you off with sunny days, oh yeah, you know, out there in Radio Land, I bet you there's lots of people that all of a sudden finishing the entire <laughs> Sesame Street theme in their heads. They know the tune intimately, and they can probably say every single word to it. So basically, from now on, we're coming in to do the show, and we're going to be chanting through the whole hour. Is that what we're going to do? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. People use uh, music to communicate political ideas. The power is there to have these ideas, at least in a greatly abbreviated form, to stay in the mind a very, very long time. Lenin, you say you want a revolution. Well, you know, we all want to change the world. And that's how he was doing it. He was doing it by taking abbreviated ideas, give peace a chance, associating it with music that stays in your mind basically forever. It's a great way to change the world. Again, I don't know that, you know, sometimes when we're critical of music or even the lyrics of music, saying give peace a chance, yeah, it's left undefined, but at least it's stated as some kind of emotional objective. Yes. It's, it's just a starting it's not, point it's, it's for a, yeah, discussion. Exactly. Yeah. And it's not the concluding point. That, that's sort no. of what I'm saying. Yeah. yeah. No, and I agree with you totally. Uh, besides lyrically, uh, altering a person's ideas and philosophy, I think that certain melodies, as Rand pointed out once, can alter or at least reinforce a person's thinking. If you listen to a complex, this is something that you touched on before, if you listen to a complex piece of classical music with intersecting counterpoints and overlapping themes, or perhaps a lengthy and groundbreaking opera like Wagner's Tristan, your mind can be very active, focusing on the intricacies of the piece. Likewise, or sorry, I should say counterwise, if you listen to a Philip Glass or Enya, your mind can be quickly become numbed. But you know sometimes, Bob, just like you said earlier on, there's a place for Philip Glass and Enya, or techno music. For example, I like playing techno music um, uh, when I'm driving. 
I can concentrate more on the driving than on the monotonous melodies of Philip Glass and yet still have that bit of background music we all seem to want. Why is that? We all, all want to have some sort of music in the background a lot of time. It's just always there, too. By the way, I still like listening to a lot of the left-wing uh, mystical music out there, like the Moody Blues. I always put a Moody well, Blues on there. And there. you know, if you want to listen to music, George you better Harrison. not be putting a political preamble to it because you won't have much to listen to. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, it's quite difficult to write music about right-wing stuff, Maybe. like balance sheets and interest <laughs> rates. And If you could, I don't know how passionate it would be <laughs> or what great emotions it would evoke. Uh, perhaps we could just stick to silly love songs, though, Bob. You'd, you'd think that people would have had enough of them. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's it for today's show. I think uh, very interesting observations, Robert. But um, certainly learned a lot about music and its role in uh, affecting people and uh, being affected by people in terms of how people communicate with each other. That's it for today. We've got to get out of here. And we hope you'll join us again next week when we'll continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, make sure you control your music, not your music control you. Fade into <laughs> color, color into black and white. Under the clothes, everything will be all right. This is a top to a, you know, what we use on stage, but it's very, very special because if you can see, yeah, the numbers all go to eleven.